Lisa, one of these days I'm going to buy a farm and get away from all this. Now, of course you will, darling. I mean it. I know you do, Oliver. How soon? Well... Oliver, how soon? <laughs> Yesterday. <laughs> Green Acres is the place to be. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Robert Smith. Today is Friday, March 9th, and that was Eddie Albert and Ava Gabor, you heard at the top, from the uh, sociological study of agriculture known as Green Acres. Today on the podcast, we are going to visit a place straight out of childhood myth, the family dairy farm. So I'm picturing like a, a rolling hillside and a, a white farmhouse and, and silos and trees and little dotted black and white cows all over the place. I will say this farm was as bucolic as you can imagine. It, pretty much exactly what you described. But behind that peaceful scene, as I spent a few hours there at the farm, I learned that there's all the roiling tension, the rising inequality, the economic volatility, and also maybe possibly the secret to success in this chaotic 21st century economy. I can't wait. But first, the Planet Money Indicator with Jacob Goldstein. Today's Planet Money Indicator, 61,000. The U.S. economy added 61,000 more jobs than we originally thought back in December and January. This is according to the jobs report that came out today. And one thing that gets sort of buried in these jobs reports, in addition to telling us how we did last month, which, by the way, which was, was pretty very good. good. Yeah, yeah. They also go back and say, oh, the past few months, we, we got a better look at those now. We're going to revise those numbers. And so in this case, those revisions, they were upward a lot for both months. So those jobs reports, they were even better than we originally thought. You know, I remember listening to the podcast a month ago when you did the numbers, the jobs numbers. And here, I, I want to play a little bit of this because you were very excited last month before they revised the number. Jess, if this were like a morning radio show <laughs> or something, I would be like ringing the bell right now or whatever we do when there is unambiguously good news. This number, this 243,000 new jobs, this is a great jobs number. Look at how excited you are. I want you to revise upward your excitement from last month. I, I, I sort of feel like I gave it all I had. I will tell you that now the number for January, you just heard in the tape, it was 240-something thousand new jobs. Very good. Obviously, I got very excited. Now, according to this revised number, in January, the economy added 280-some thousand jobs. You know, which is fantastic. In fact, the last three months have been very good, exactly what people want to see. Yeah, it's great. And and the whole upward revision thing is is very good, very encouraging. I mean, I will just here drop the obligatory note of context, which is, you know, on the one hand, you can think of this as improvement, as rates, and this is good. On the other hand, if you think in absolute terms, in levels, and I say this every month, but I say it every month for a reason, the job market is still quite bad. The unemployment rate is still high. If you look at this broader unemployment measure that we like to look at, it's still over 20 million Americans are either unemployed or underemployed. So getting better, still bad. I'm not going to let you unring that bell. I don't want to unring it. Let's, let's ring the bell with caution. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jacob Goldstein. Thanks. 
and on to the podcast. So, Robert, you know, I've been sort of really fixated for the last year on what's going on in the U.S. economy, this particular question. We are so much more productive than ever. You know, I love going to factories. I've spent a lot of time in factories, especially in the last year. And we are so much better at making stuff, so much faster and cheaper than ever before. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, everyone knows this, the average American feels worse off. Life is hard. Incomes are stagnant, dropping in some cases. And and, you know, I, I know from your Atlantic story from various podcasts you've done that this thing we're talking about here is the sort of fundamental struggle of of our time, which is how Americans react to global economic change. Yeah. And I feel like in, in broad strokes, for the sake of this podcast anyway, I might change my mind later, but for the sake of this podcast, I think there are four clear lessons about how to have at least a shot at thriving in the current confusing global economy. Let's so, do it. Number one. Number one, stay on top of technological change. Number two, focus. Specialize on the things you can do best. Three, find some way to buffer yourself, to protect yourself against unexpected changes that are definitely coming. And fourth, and maybe most important, find something you can sell, some product or service that your customers are willing to pay a premium for because you've given them something they want that no one else can give them. Now, I have seen this, these four principles in action. I've seen them here in public radio. I've seen them in auto parts factories. I've seen them in high-tech biotech companies. But I think the place I've seen them clearest, the one business that I think most perfectly represents the challenges and the opportunities of the 21st century, Fulper Dairy it's Farm. It's so beautiful here. Yeah, it is. This yeah. is not what comes to mind when a New Yorker thinks about New Jersey. So describe this place to me, Adam. All right. So this is 90 minutes outside of New York. You drive past the, you know, the chaos of northeastern New Jersey. The chemical plant. The te- chemical plants and the ports and the airport. You go out to West Amwell Township, very sweet, quiet place near the Pennsylvania border. Now, Fulper Farms. I met three generations of Fulpers. Bob's the grandpa, born there. Robert runs things now. He also was born there. And Robert's daughter, Brianna, who's sort of waiting in the wings to take over the family business. And this is, you know, close your eyes, picture a family dairy farm. This is pretty much it. It's a white farmhouse on a small hill. There's some old barns, some of which date back to when Bob's grandmother bought the place in 1908. But you go inside one of these buildings that seem kind of old And what you see looks more like a factory floor. It's all stainless steel, hydraulic equipment. I asked Bob, the grandfather, what it was like to milk cows back in the Great Depression when he was growing up. Most of my family milked by hand. I had nine sisters and one brother. And they all milked by hand. Back then, the Fulpers, all 11 kids and mom and dad, they could spend a whole day milking 15 cows. Okay, so clearly that is your first principle, stay on top of technological change. I mean, these days, no one is going to make any money if you have to milk all your cows by hand. Right, but that's not the technological change. Yes, they have these pumps that automatically milk the cows, but that's old technology. That came out in the 1940s. Of course, there's been innovations and stuff. But when I say the latest in dairy technology, that's not what I'm talking about. It's actually not something I noticed at all. You know, I'm a city guy. I don't really know one cow from another. But Robert, the son, explained the coolest thing on their farm is actually inside the cow. This cow here is, she's the queen of the herd right here. This is Claudia. 
And I don't know much about cows, but she sure looked like a gorgeous cow to me. She won a big statewide New Jersey award last year. And she is cutting-edge bovine biotechnology. A modern cow today can produce so much more milk than any cow ever before in history. Production level back when they were milking by hand was maybe 30 pounds a cow. Today we're milking, you know, 75 pounds a cow. I don't understand this. So is, is Claudia just bigger? I mean, she just makes more milk because she's a, a larger cow? She is bigger, but I actually learned a lot about cow structure. I mean, it's almost like bioarchitecture. And I mean, think about it this way. A Ferrari isn't faster than a Model T because it just has a bigger engine. Every part of the cow is different than a cow 60 years ago. See her udder, how well attached, how high it is, and see how sharp she is and how wide she is, how big her barrel is. These are all the things that make that a special cow, you know. Even if you look at this cow next to her, you know, the udder attachment's totally different. And so that's why Claudia can just eat like crazy because she has so much capacity and she makes more milk. And so that's what you're breeding for. How does a guy like Robert Fulper end up with cows this much better than his dad's cows? This brings us to principle number two. Do you remember what that was? That is specialization. Exactly, specialization. So back in the day, farmers would do everything. They'd breed the cows. They'd grow the feed that the cows ate. They'd birth the cows. They'd do all of it. One guy had to know everything. Now the Fulpers specialize in raising the cows and milking the cows, and they hire someone else, a trained cow breeding expert, someone with genetics expertise, to worry about how to produce the next generation of super cows. This is more than just putting a, a good-looking bull next to a, a strong-looking cow, right? Yeah, this may be the saddest thing I learned there. The cows on the Fulpers farm will never see a full-grown bull in their entire lives. Wait, there's no bulls on the farm? No, not at all. It's all females. If one of the females gives birth to a boy, that boy is out of there very quickly. So what happens is the Fulpers bring in a breeding expert who goes around cow by cow, you know, 100-plus cows, and identifies their weaknesses. So one might be bow-legged, another one might be too skinny, another one has a saggy udder. And the expert then goes on. There's all these online shopping sites and, and catalogs of bull semen. And each bit of bull semen has descriptions of that bull and the bull's female relatives. And so the breeding expert can find exactly the right bull to impregnate that cow to get rid of whatever weakness that cow has. So they place an order, use a credit card, and a couple days later, by UPS, they get a vial, a frozen vial of bull semen. You know, it's amazing because you were talking about this when you came back from the farm. But there's this whole world of experts and subcontractors out there now to help out the farmers. Right. Robert told me that he used to really stay on top of cow nutrition. He stayed on top of what's the best feed for healthy, happy, productive cows. But he said it's now such a fast advancing field with so many new breakthroughs that he just can't keep track of it. So... He has a breeding consultant. He also has a, nutri a cow nutritionist. And this cow nutritionist has deep understanding of the entire cow digestive tract and how different kinds of nutrients, if they're delivered at different times of the year, will help the cow maintain maximum productivity and maintain cow health. <laughs> you are so excited about this. It's so funny to watch you. Your, your face is alight with glee. It was so cool. <laughs> and they also have this specialized cow feeding technology so that the cows can sort of wander around at their will, but when they're hungry, they go 
into this special feeding barn, and they get exactly what they need. These cows wear this collar, and they have a green responder on the bottom of the collar. As they enter that stall, that computer you saw in my office over here identifies her, and then uh, sends out feed into the stall depending on her production level. So she gets kind of special attention if she's, you know, if she's at the stage of lactation where she's producing a lot of milk, she'll get a little extra grain there to help support her milk production. I honestly, as I think this may be clear, I could go on all day long about all the different experts and specialists that help a modern dairy farm yeah, run. Let's not do that. But <laughs> all right, but let me tell you, this I thought was actually kind of cool. Was made me happy. The biggest advance in cow productivity. Two words cow comfort, figuring out how to make cows comfortable. Because when they're stressed, when they're not happy, they don't produce as much milk. All right. To bring everyone uh, up to date on where we are in the Davidson principles for a modern economy. Uh, number one, stay on top of technology to improve productivity, which the farmers are doing. Number two, specialize in what you're good at. Bring in the experts to do the stuff that you don't know how to do. And that brings us to number... Number three. Do you remember what it is? protect yourself. So for most of the 20th century, dairy farming, like a lot of the U.S. economy, was fairly stable. You know, the average dairy farmer in January had a pretty good sense of where they'd be in December. For dairy farmers, this was particularly the case because for most of the 20th century, the U.S. government kept dairy prices fixed and also kept cow feed prices fixed. Not precisely fixed, but they were only allowed to trade within a pretty narrow band. So farmers pretty much could rely on a very specific margin year after year, month after month. But in 2000, because of global trade rules, the U.S. stopped this system. They still pegged the price a tiny bit, but nowhere near as much. The The prices of both milk, that means the profits for the farmers, and feed, which generally means the cost of the farmers, keeps wildly fluctuating with global market demand. Now, I should say, liquid milk is not really sold globally that much, but butter is, cheese is, and milk powder are now globally traded commodities. And so the price of those commodities worldwide has a very direct impact on what the fulpers can charge here in New Jersey. So the world market has changed or skewed some numbers, you know, like like grain prices are extremely high. Well, grain price is really high because the world market has really impacted it and the price of the dollar has collapsed which impacts the price of grains. There are so many factors that I can't figure out. Talking to the fulpers now, dairy farming is almost like being a Wall Street derivatives trader. I mean, you, you buy and sell milk futures and grain futures. You can lock in high prices, or maybe you want to just insure against big drops in prices. Now, I should say the fulpers do a bit of this, but this is not an area that they've specialized in, and they're really, really busy running the farm, so they don't use these tools as much as bigger farms do. Okay, so they have their super cow. They have their team of geniuses to help with feed technology and, and breeding, and, and now they have all of these financial tools, high-tech financial tools and hedging and options and all of this to protect themselves. So how are they doing? I mean, is this, is this the most successful dairy farm in the United States? So I said this was the perfect example of the challenges and, and some of the solutions to the 21st century. And that is definitely true. But I should say the fulpers are not at all rolling in dough. Robert showed me his balance sheet for 2011. 
he asked me not to tell you exactly how much money he and his brother, they, they split the profits between them, how much they made. But when you divide it by the 96 hours he works each week, we found it's not very pretty. So you are well, I mean, this year or last year, you well below minimum wage yeah. on a per hour basis. Per hour basis, yes, that's true. Like, like maybe half. Yeah. I, I never, I'm afraid to look. <laughs> and by the way, last year, that was a really good year. Milk prices were really high. It seems like we've gotten to that point you always get to in, in, in a farming story. And that's that, like, it continues to be a, a tough life. This is why we hear all these stories of it's hard to get the next generation to take over farms. They have all the advantages of a modern economy. As you've said, they're doing everything right. And, and still, that's, that's, that's their best year, less than minimum wage. I should say, the, the Fulpers, they are optimistic. I think farmers are inherently optimistic. And they say they have something of a secret weapon. My brother and I have done whatever we could to get to where we are with the environment we've been in. And that environment's changing, and we haven't changed like we should because now we think maybe the next generation is going to have to figure some things out. I double majored business uh-huh. and finance as well as dairy management. That's the fifth generation of Fulpers, Robert's daughter, Brianna. She's 25. And unlike a lot of people who grew up on farms, she really wants to stay dairy farming. She went to Cornell and learned dairy farm management. And she now has a bunch of ideas about how Fulper Farms could eke out some more money from the farm. I'm getting this strange idea. We're about to hit principle number four. Yes, principle number four. Charge a premium by really knowing your customers and giving them something they're willing to pay more for. Brianna realized that they kept talking about this problem they had. They're really close to New York City. Land is really expensive in northern New Jersey. There's not an agricultural world there, so they have to travel really far to buy ag equipment. There's all these problems being so close to New York City. And she realized, by using her farm as a case study in dairy school, in college, that being so close to the city might be their best way to make money. It might be their secret to being a successful farm. After all, I looked. I could not find any dairy farm that close to New York City. I think this is the closest one to Brooklyn. And as you know, because you and I both live in Brooklyn, New York, people in our home borough are kind of obsessed with farming. Yeah, not not necessarily like the actual messy, dirty part of farming, but this idea of farming, this idea that we can live the big city lifestyle but still have farmers who will come into our farmer's markets, you know, the locavores. We love this idea of having it close by. And Brianna has figured out that there's money in that. So, for example, she's working with a cheesemaker who is going to help them create a premium Fulper branded cheese. You and I, hopefully, one day soon could go to our local shop and buy really, really local. This is the closest cheese to Brooklyn. (laughs) I I want a picture of Claudia right there and her perfectly attached udder right on the label. Oh, Claudia's beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) I would buy that cheese. Brianna had this other idea. Did you know that you could actually send your two daughters for a week for summer camp at Fulper Farms? The girls would learn how to groom a cow. They get to run around farm fields. I'm sure there are hay rides, things like that. I love it. Families pay a few hundred bucks. Their kids have an awesome week experiencing agriculture. I am sold. But the, this, this is actually bringing money into the farm. You know what's amazing? A few weeks of summer camp that Brianna did as like a college project. 
brings in almost as much money as a whole year of milking cows. That summer camp program put me through Cornell. Really? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That is awesome for the Fulpers. And, you know, I've heard about this trend of agritainment, you know, where people can come and sort of experience agriculture and, you know, buy a lot of tchotchkes and T-shirts. You know, I was on a farm and that kind of thing. But, But how many people really have that option? You know, most of the farms in the United States are not close to uh, um, agriculture-hungry tourists like ourselves. Or they might just not be into that kind of thing. But I think – so that this is where we get into the opportunity part of the 21st century, which is there is no longer a single solution. I think 50 years ago, you visit 20 dairy farms. They probably have pretty much identical business models. Now – each successful dairy farm is going to find its own little recipe. I talked to this one agricultural economist who specializes in dairy farms, and he said there's a recent survey of the economic condition of 50 dairy farms. What they found is that farms today, on average, make more money than the farms of 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. But it's a lot more volatile. So so any given year might be a lot more money or a lot less money. The average is higher, but any given year is very volatile. And he said, a lot of farms don't make the transition successfully. So yes, there are opportunities. Yes, there are ways of harnessing all the things that make life today so chaotic to your advantage. But if we're looking at dairy farms, the, the simple fact is most dairy farmers are not going to make the shift successfully. But the ones that do may just end up finding themselves better off. This world is big and wild and half insane. Please, as always, we'd like to know what you think. I would really love to hear from any farmers who listen to this podcast or people who are agricultural specialists of any kind. I'd love to hear what's your business, what's your farm economy, how is it going. You can email us, planetmoney at npr.org. You can reach us on Facebook, uh, Twitter, or Spotify. We're there, and we'd love to hear from you. I'm Robert Smith. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. Bye, 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 bye.